Well, good morning. Good to see everybody today as we are on the bullet train powering through the holidays, right? I mean, we're a week away from Christmas, two weeks away from the end of the year. This thing's going to, you're applauding that, okay. I guess we're just ready for the whole thing to be over, huh? <laughs> you know, that might be appropriate then for today's title because we're, we're talking about rest, rest. Maybe that, that's something that we need. Hey, as we're moving toward Christmas, we've been, I've been doing kind of a, a short series here, uh, making a, a kind of a comparison or a connection between what happens in creation and, and what happens with Christmas. There, there are things in the going on in the first three chapters of the Bible in Genesis that, that find a, a bigger fulfillment, a greater light, or in some cases resolve something Christmas that started back in creation. So our, our first message a couple of weeks ago, we looked at God there in Genesis chapter 1 in the opening verses. We saw God whisper and say, let there be light. And oh gosh, we, man, we saw the heavens, didn't we? Remember that video? And we just got a little glimpse at the, at the immensity, uh, the power, the creativity of our God. But it's not just in what he made, but in saying, let there be light, God also dispelled darkness and chaos, which is really good to see him do because you see with Christmas, he again says, let there be light. But he's not speaking out into space but into another place where there's darkness and chaos, and, and that is into the human soul. It, Jesus is the light of the world. Je Jesus is the, the light of our lives. So today we're going to jump from what we saw there in day one, and we're going to go all the way to day seven. Now, of course, a, a whole lot happens in between, right? I mean, we, we see God creating waters and skies and, and land and separating them. He, he fills the skies with celestial bodies. He covers the land with vegetation. Then he fills the land, fills the seas with, with uh, living creatures. And then we come to day six and we see really the pinnacle of God's creation, the high point of God's creation, which is interesting because you go back to, the, again, that video we watched and we saw how vast and how big the universe is and how big some of these stars are. And, and yet the pinnacle is you and me because you and I are the only part of creation that was created in His image, that, that, that was modeled and fashioned after Him. And so we go through those six days, and that brings us to day seven. Now, obviously, what's going on in the first six days is the discussion, the debate of a, a, a lot of scientists and Christians and what we think about these various matters. And in all of that, I think day seven can kind of get lost. We forget there's a seven-day cycle there, and God does something on day seven. Look at it up here in Genesis chapter 2. It says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Folks, rest is a part of who God is and it is a gift that he gives to creation. Now, I don't know about you, but that for a long time really kind of landed on me funny. I, I, it's like, does God need rest? Because when I think of you and I needing rest, I mean, why do we need that? Because we're tired, right? We're, maybe we're exhausted. Maybe we're even not feeling good. You, you ever told somebody that wasn't feeling good, hey, you should go home and get some, yeah, go get some rest. 
Now, I mean, I don't fault God if he needs some rest. My goodness, he just created the entire universe in six days. Who am I to say he can't stop and say, just give me a minute. I mean, I wouldn't think any less of him if he said, give me a minute. But actually what God is expressing there, folks, is not that he's kind of, whew, it's been a long week. He's not expressing that there's, there's something wrong. You see, rest for you and I always addresses our inability, our inability to keep going. But when God says that He rests, that's expressing His ability. God has the ability to stop. And there's, there's no fear, there's no frustration of, of what's going to fall apart because I'm not moving. What's going to fall apart because I'm not, I'm not working? He can stop. And he can enjoy something finished. Something completed. Something done. Now you'll notice that, that there's no command here. It's not telling Adam that he is to do something or not do something or, or humanity. It's just an expression of who God is, He's a God who can, who does, rest. And He gives that principle to creation. Not a command, but just a principle of, hey, you do really well to acknowledge this day. He crowns it as being holy. Holy means different. Set apart. Distinct. So there is a blessing that God gives to you and me when He says, hey, you need a day that doesn't look like the other six. You, you need a day that doesn't look like the other six. So it's a principle in Genesis 2, but then of course out of that principle we do end up with a command, don't we? Yeah, we have, we have God talking years, centuries later. We have God talking to Moses on Mount Sinai giving the Ten Commandments and look, look what makes part of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For in six days, hey, y'all remember back there at the beginning... There, there was a principle, God established something. Okay, we go back to that. God made the heaven and the earth, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and He made it holy. Now when you and I look at this, what, what we tend to do is end up discussing, okay, what can we do, what can we not do on the Sabbath, on Sunday, and, and, and that really has been the dialogue for like almost all of history for a long time. I don't know how much of a dialogue it is today. I, I, I would almost say it's a, just really a, a, a non-issue for us. I don't, I don't think we think a whole lot. Now, realize I'm saying that to a church crowd. I mean, y'all all did something because it was Sunday, right? You, you, you got in your car and you came to church. And, and yeah, I, I, th I think we do have a mindset, okay, there's this day, and I'm, I'm supposed to do something with it, and, and so we, we run up to church, but I think there's a tendency in our mentality that the moment we walk out of here, whoo, it's right back to work. And, and understand how I'm using the word work. We're, we're not just talking about what we do for a paycheck. I mean, obviously, work includes what we do for a paycheck, but work is what we do to make life Work. We not only work for a paycheck, we get groceries and we mow the yard and we run errands and we get kids from here to there and we answer emails and we stay connected. You got to stay connected. And we have just driven hard past any concept of a Sabbath and we've driven right to where we're actually most comfortable and that's working. That, 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 that's working. 
We've driven past it. We've left it behind. And really, honestly, aren't we better for it? I mean, look at all we're producing. Look at all we're accomplishing. And we're so much happier and healthier physically and spiritually and mentally and emotionally, right? Please note the sarcasm here. Because you realize as we, as a a culture, as believers, have moved past any concept of a Sabbath, I, I mean, you realize we're more depressed in America than we've ever been. That's not just a statement of what I think about people. That's, that's, that's a statistic. That, that, that's based on the medicine. That's based, based on what people are going to doctors for. We are more depressed than we've ever been. We're more stressed than we've ever been. I, I mean, and that's not just a, I personally feel stress. Stress is what happens to our relationships. We think we're accomplishing something as a family if we can figure out how to have a meal together. A meal. Why can we not have a meal together? Because we're so busy accomplishing so much. We're, we're so busy working so hard and being successful and, and, and producing. Hey, we work, work, work to have. And we have so much. And yet, we're more dissatisfied we're more dissatisfied than we've ever been with, with that which we possess and use and have and, and the opportunities. And, and, and none of it makes us happy. So you know what we do when things aren't working? We work harder. You know, if you're going in the wrong direction, just start pedaling faster. You know, I mean, we, we work hard. Hey, work harder. Work harder at being important. Work harder at showing how valuable you are. Work harder at being smart. Work harder at being pretty. Work harder at being important. Work harder at getting stuff that you know sooner or later has to fill you up and make you happy. Work harder. That's our answer to everything. <laughs> so we're talking about the Sabbath, and now I'm kind of beating up working harder. So clearly we're leading to the place in the message where I start telling you what you can and can't do on Sunday, right? Actually, actually that is... Nothing to do with what this message is about. As a matter of fact, because we have this work mentality, we turn religion and we turn its rules into a work. We, we approach it as a work to be knocked out, to be accomplished so that I, I get what I need, so that I get my paycheck from it. I mean, gosh, the Jews are a perfect example of this. The, the Jewish world that Jesus arrived at. I mean, you realize the biggest thing Jesus argued with the Pharisees about was the Sabbath and what they were doing with it. Now, what were they doing with it? They, just like you and me, were, were given a principle, given a command. You need, you need to honor the Sabbath. Man, there needs to be a day that doesn't look like the others. And so... I'm assuming with a good heart, a good mind, they said, okay, what what do we do? What do we do? What do we not do? What does it look like? I mean, we do have to ask that question, right? When we're trying to figure out how to obey the Lord. And so they jotted down a couple of ideas of how, you know, like a preacher, a pastor could get up and say, okay, here's how we're going to honor the Sabbath. And, And as they were jotting that down, they stopped somewhere around 600 rules, 600 rules of what you could and could not do on the Sabbath if you were going to be right with God. Now, here's, a, here's an example of, of, of some of those rules. You could pick up half a fig. And you and I don't pick up any figs, right? <laughs> Why would I want a fig? What's a fig? It's a big, ugly-looking, kind of rotten, grapish thing looking. 
Okay, very big in the diet over there. You could pick up half a fig, but you could not pick up a whole fig because a whole fig would be a burden, therefore work, therefore you'd be dishonoring the Sabbath. And of course, you can pick up half a fig, but you cannot pick half half a fig twice because if you pick up half a fig at, like, say, eight in the morning and then picked up the other half at four, that would make a, a whole. This is, we're on it, right? We're on our math today. Yeah, two halves is, is a whole, and that would be a burden and therefore work, and therefore you'd be dishonoring the Sabbath. And my favorite, I think my favorite of all, you can, it doesn't say you can pick up half a child. Uh, no, you can pick up your child on the Sabbath as long as they're not holding a fig. I mean, is the fig thing really weirded them out, didn't it? You think, what, what, is this a joke? No. This is totally not a joke. These were their rules. They had 600 of those kinds of statements talking about what you can do and can't do so that you're honoring the Sabbath. And, and, and I mean, literally, this is what Jesus arrives to. He watches it and it just, he tweets, SMH. I mean, he really did. He just, I'm just shaking my head here. You think, ah, oh, he didn't tweet. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. I, I didn't tell the truth there because they, they didn't Twitter back then, right? But you know, he actually did stand there and shake his head. He said, guys, you know, as he's watching all this, he says, you know, the, the Sabbath, did you, you, you realize it was a gift. The Sabbath was for you. It wasn't a burden to be accomplished. It wasn't a work that you needed to do. But, but boy, we, we turned it into a work. We, we, we made it a work. Now, folks, you know, work actually is not the problem. As a matter of fact, remember how the command starts. Work six days. You ever notice whatever God says, we tend to figure out a way to go the other way? Work six days and rest. I'm not going to work, and I'm going to work less than six days. But again, remember, six days is not just what you do for a paycheck. It's all the things we have to do. But work is not the problem. As a matter of fact, this might surprise some of you. You, you will work in heaven. I, I don't mean like a play job. I mean, you'll, you'll work. You'll do real work in heaven. And I know that's kind of hard to, to, to understand that because work is like, well, that's like where most of our enemies are. And that's where somebody kind of bosses me around. And, and I don't get to do what I want to do. I mean, a lot of us, we, we have some negative issues and things that go on with work. So how could that be something we do in heaven? And, and how do you know that, by the way? Well, it's in Genesis 1 and 2. What do we have in Genesis 1 and 2? We, we have a perfect world. We, we have God relating with people in a perfect relationship. It's a perfect world. There, there's no need. And yet in that perfect world, what does God do with Adam and Eve? He puts them to work. Work is a part of serving. Work is a part of producing. There, this idea that we don't do anything in heaven but float around on clouds and, and do the harp thing, that's what's actually nowhere in Scripture there's nothing like that. And yet that's kind of everybody's vision. No, there'll be jobs, there'll be work. It'll be how you produce, how you contribute, how you serve. And it won't be a bad thing. It'll be a good thing that you do. And it's not just when we get to heaven. God, God blesses work here. I mean, for the, for the New Testament believer, he says, hey, listen, when you're going to work, whether it's what you do for a paycheck or to get groceries or to mow the yard, just think of me as your boss. Always work like I'm your boss. Always work like at the end of the day, the paycheck, the reward is coming from me. When you work, everybody should be able to watch you and see who you worship and why. 
So, I mean, he elevates our work to kind of a whole new understanding so that it's, there's not that negativity to it. Work's not the problem. What's the problem? Sin. Sin is the problem. And when I say sin is the problem, I'm not referring to a, a sin you committed while you were working. Oh, you sinned when you went and got those groceries. Oh, you sinned in the way you did your job. I, I, that's, not the, that's not my point there. The point is the impact of sin on humanity. The impact of sin on all of us. And here again, let's go back to the opening pages of the Bible. Genesis 3, when we brought sin into the world, guess what got affected? Our work. Weeds. That's what God said. Weeds just got added to the field. What, what are, I mean, weeds are not anything we want in work, are they? That, that's a part of frustration. That's a, a part of sweat. See, what sin brought to work is frustration, competition, even the wonderful ability to work all day long and it end up being worthless. You ever had a day like that? I mean, you, you did what you were supposed to do. You did a good job at it. And then somebody switched gears, changed their minds, and you just can pick up all your work now and go over here and drop it in the garbage. <laughs> That's a lot of fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's sin that does that. But it's not just sin's impact on working. It's on our mentality and how we approach work, how we use work. It now becomes a part of our pride. We use work as a way of telling everyone, everything, even God, you owe me. I mean, our mentality is, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. You've done this for me, I, and now, now i got to do this for you. And as a matter of fact, some of us are a little bit even uncomfortable. I've got to do this back. Because I don't want to be beholden to anybody. I don't want to be behind the score. We approach all of our relationships in this. We're keeping score and who's ahead. And we do things from, from our worst relationship to our very best relationships to God. You owe me. And have you ever noticed you're never behind? Our mentality is usually I've always done a little bit more than them. Of course they owe me. We're, we don't usually have a mentality that says, boy, they just really outserve me and outlove me and outdo me. No, we've always got it the, the other way. It becomes our pride. It becomes a way of saying, you owe me. And do you realize this mentality of work makes it incredibly difficult to receive grace? To, to, to receive the gift of Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it, it meets every need we have. There's no reason not to do that except my entire mentality is wired so, so that you... Oh, grace, that, that means I'm being given something that I didn't deserve, that I didn't earn. I, I, I didn't pay it back. I can't pay it back. You gotten a gift yet? Amazon knocked on the door and you thought, oh, I didn't know we were exchanging gifts. I didn't know I was going to... And so once you see you got a gift from them, what do you got to do? You got to go get online and get one back. Even the score. I can't even the score with God. I, I can't send them something back. It's, I mean, His gift is that big, that overwhelming. All, all I can do is receive it. And you know, there's a, there's a lot of times that... We do understand grace. We do receive the gift. I mean, we trust. I know this is what Jesus did for me. I didn't deserve it. I can't pay it back. But you know what? Our mentality, our nature takes back over and we start walking through church life, Christian life. That mentality's still in place. I mean, it's just hard not to think, especially if I've got a need, especially if I'm looking for God to do something. It's just hard not to say, man, Lord, you know, I went to church this week. I read my Bible, 
I was nice to somebody I don't even like. I mean, why won't you answer my prayer? That's a natural thought, isn't it? You see what we just did? We just built a work relationship there. I've done my part. When do you do yours? I'm ahead. Now you... I mean, I doubt anybody in this room has said, God, you owe me. But it's real easy to to think and live and act as if exactly that's what we're saying to God. You owe me. Makes it very hard to receive grace because of our pride. We actually think I can do something. I mean, I actually, folks, this is how humans think. If I don't pick up a whole fig on Sabbath, God owes me. And every one of us have done it. Probably not with a fig. But the, the, the Jews of that day, the Pharisees, weren't doing anything different than the way everyone... I mean, really, you think God's going, wow, they didn't pick up a whole fig. That is so cool. I am so blessed by that. I mean, you ever wonder why they didn't scratch their head and say, why in the world would you think God cares? <laughs> Cut it now. Oh, that was actually 60%. You're in the bad. And yet, that's exactly how we relate with God in that, in that work relationship. But isn't sin kind of there as a reminder to us when we have one of those honest moments that I'm really not good enough? I mean, I might have you all fooled. You all think I'm good, and that's what we do. I got to show you how good I am. Look at what I, I do. But you know what? I know. You know. You know no matter how, how good you are. You know what goes through your mind. You know what you really think about people and conversations you have in your head you know what you should be doing and you're not and sometimes even give people the belief that you are you know you lied you know you stole I mean we know that sin is there to really you're not good enough you're not so worthy and deserving of love so worthy and deserving of an award you're not You know, that life of trying to be good enough, trying to be accepted, is a wearisome, exhausting life. And it's one that Jesus wants to rescue you from. Guys, folks, I I, I hope now, after going back to Genesis 2 and leading up to this, I'm really excited about this verse, because I think a lot of us know it. I hope it means more to you now than ever before. Listen, now, in light of what we've just talked about, listen to Jesus' invitation on your life and on my life, Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. You think he's talking about what you do for a paycheck there? No. He's not talking about if you have a hard job. He's not talking about if you had a rough week. He's talking about life. Hey, are you, are you worn out from trying to hide who you really are? Are you worn out trying to give this image to your friends and your family and and, and the church people? Are you worn out from that? Are are you worn out from trying to be good enough and knowing that you, you don't, there's no stop in that job. You don't ever get there. Are you just tired of that? Hey man, look what I, I want to give you what my father always intended for you to have. This rat race, this competition, this one-upmanship, this you owe me. That's not what God created for you. I want to give you what? I want to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's not language we use. You know what Jesus is saying here? Come, Come live under me. Come into a relationship with me and live under my way of looking at everything. 
My way of relating with anyone and, and everyone. Come up under me. Now, if we're honest, now we think very highly of Jesus around here, don't we? You definitely, I want to definitely see some nodding there. I'd be very uncomfortable if we didn't. But if we're honest, entering relationships is always a tricky business for us. Because we, we tend to wonder, what do you want from me? Because I enter relationships for what I'm getting out of you. And it's just this constant game. Again, it's not just our worst relationships. Our very best relationships. It's always this one-upmanship. I did this. I, I, you, I was over here. Now you, so we might wonder, what's Jesus really up to? What's he trying to get out of me? When, look at this. When he says, I'm gentle and lowly. Again, that's not exactly language we would use in how we relate with each other. You know what Jesus is saying here? Listen, I'm not calling you into this relationship to compete with you. I'm not calling you into this relationship so I can manipulate you and get something from you and and make you become something that that serves me and my needs. I mean, folks, you get it. You get it. See, all, all of what we're doing, all our manipulation in relationships is about a need we have. You do realize you got nothing Jesus needs. You, you don't enrich him, you don't expand him, you don't make him bigger, you don't make him better, he's not happier. You've got nothing you can bring to this. I'm gentle and lowly. I'm not calling you into this relationship for what I can get out of you. I'm, I'm not competing with you in this. I'm watching you and what you're doing with life and how sin has affected it. I just want you to know rest. I want you to know the rest from just clawing and fighting to be accepted, to be good enough, and never getting there. You see, in the way we live life, there's no place to stop. There's no place to actually enjoy what's been done and what's been accomplished. Jesus wants to bring you that. Now, you, you, might, you might be thinking right now, wow, this is really interesting. Did you notice the subliminal message I just gave that you think what I'm saying is really interesting? You might be thinking this is really interesting, but now what does this have to do with Christmas? Okay, I'm glad you asked. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, right there, the beginning of the Christmas story. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. That's normally a problem in a relationship, right? You know, it's funny how we read the scripture and it, it starts to sound like fantasy to us or we start to think of it as like some world that is not, rare, not, not real. No, Joseph's engaged to be married to this girl and she shows up pregnant and he didn't do it. And so he's a little weirded out. And so that's what explains this very real next statement. And her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. You know what, Joseph, he was a nice guy. And I, you know what, honestly, if you're going to show up pregnant in this relationship and I didn't do it, I don't know that I will still be married to you. I don't even know that I want to be around you. But you know what, he still cared about it. He didn't want to put her to shame. He didn't, want to, he didn't want to mock her, so he resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, husband, divorce, that sounds like they're already married, aren't they? In the Jewish culture, when you were engaged, you took on the titles husband and wife. And actually breaking an engagement would be similar to what you and I would think of as a divorce. Uh, uh, an engagement was a good bit more binding. 
And so he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, right? I mean, I know this is kind of different, right? Doesn't happen every day. But that baby in her was put there by the Holy Spirit. And and so you can take her as your wife. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save people from their sins. Why Why did Jesus come to this world? Why is there a Christmas? Jesus came to save people from their sins. Now, for those of us that have been at this for a while, we've read the story, we've been in church, we've heard that phrase, save from sins. I mean, actually, kind of at this point, we jump from Christmas to what? Easter. I mean, okay, Jesus saved me from my sins. Oh, that, that means he's going to the cross and he's dying for my sins. He's paying the penalty for what I did. Because he paid that penalty, he can now rescue me from sin and death and hell. And we think about that salvation as being this, this future-oriented thing. All the wrong I've done is covered. It's paid for. Now I, now I can know God. Now I can go to heaven. And that's an accurate way to think about what that's saying there. But it's not the totality of what is being said there. When He is rescuing you from your sins, He's rescuing you from never being good enough. He's rescuing you from a job you can never finish. You can never step back and just enjoy what has happened. But now that Christ has rescued me, I can. Can can I step back and rest? Because I just, woo, I hit a home run this week. And really, honestly, I do every week. I just live so well and so perfectly. No, my rest is... This is all the New Testament language. I hope it's coming to life for you now, what what comes out of Genesis 2. My rest is not in the great job I did this week. My rest is in the great job Christ Jesus did for me in how he lived, in how he died, and how he rose again. My rest is not in how righteous I am. My rest is in the righteousness of Christ. And in the righteousness of Christ, I can finally... Stop and look back over the past week and enjoy and give thanks in a job that's been done. Now, when I say I can stop, does that mean that you and I trying to be good is over? Whoo, boy, that job's done. I have to worry about being good at all this week now. That's a lot easier. No, watch this, okay? This last sentence I hope is what ties the whole sermon together and shows you the gift that Christ is bringing you at Christmas in this rest. Okay, now that I'm resting in the righteousness of Christ, I still pick up good ways to live. I still pick up, you still pick up God's rules. But watch this, folks. There's a huge difference between trying to be good because it's a good way to live And trying to be good because you're trying to be good enough. One is fulfilling and actually makes life work. The other is exhausting and you never get there. You never stop. The job's never done. Folks, as we rest in Christ, we can do the good work of being good. And it's not a rat race anymore. 
It's not a competition. It's not one-upmanship. It's not God owing me now because I, I did something good this week. It's a rest in the righteousness of Christ. Man, what a joy. What a peace. You know, I, I started thinking about and I'm, I'm telling you something, folks. I'm taking a nap this afternoon, okay? So don't misunderstand this. I'm taking a nap. But when I now see what God is trying to bring to my life with a Sabbath rest, how pathetic that I've reduced it to taking a nap. He's trying to do so much more for me than say, you need to stop and slow down, take a nap today. He's saying, man, hey, stop trying to be good enough. Let me take care of that for you. And you rest in my righteousness. That's a cool gift. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Not because I deserve it. Not because I'm owed it. But because you are that good. And you are that loving. You would come and you would obey every single rule. And then apply that to my life as if I did. You would pay the penalty for all my sin so that I could stand before the Father in righteousness and just rest in you. The joy, the peace of being done, the job completed. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Oh my gosh, in that rest, may I have now a whole new zeal and passion and joy in doing good because it's right and it's good. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.